For February 25th, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 556. Well, I saw the blind side and I liked it. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like the brightest stars in the cinema firmament. And we're here on the red carpet with the great and the gorgeous of Hollywood on this Oscar night. Oscars, the Oscars, the smoothest production in Hollywood. Not a thing wrong with it ever. What a a good job the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has done stewarding this storied tradition. This uh, tradition of, as Pete Fenzel likes to remind us, of a television show of a stage play about the movies. What an amazing time we're having tonight. And oh my goodness, the the surprise host that they got is so incredible. I can't... No, I... Sorry, I can't. I can't keep it up. We're not talking about the Oscars tonight. On overthinking it, we'll tell you why in just a second. But first of all, I'm Matt Rather, and I am joined here on the red carpet by my good friends Pete Fenzel. Pete, who are you wearing? Uh, I'm wearing a Cannondale Bicycles T-shirt, Matthew. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, Mark Lee, who are you wearing? I'm wearing the modestly paid Bangladeshi uh, garment worker who made the Banana Republic stuff that I'm wearing. <laughs> Got it. That's uh, and I am wearing Burt's Bees. The uh, just a ton <laughs> like, of like, lo- like just that your body is entirely slathered and in uh, chapstick. Yeah, it is uh, <laughs> amazing. It's been so dry out here. I mean, you know, here in LA, it's a desert really, and when it gets chilly, which it has been this week, there's been snow in Los Angeles, which is is. Uh, an unusual thing. It's been a little chilly for this region this week. It gets rolly, rolly, rolly dry. I said that in my Los Angeles accent, so you know I mean it. Um, and so, yeah, we uh, just go around slathered in Burt's Bees, as you can see by tuning into the Oscars and seeing the stars who are not wearing clothing, but who are slathered in Burt's Bees lip balm. No, um, guys, why didn't... Why, why didn't I, I didn't want to talk about the Oscars this year, because I had sort of very little interest in it and it also well there there are a couple reasons but why uh why did you kind of not feel the oscars this year mark you were you kind of led the charge on this so what what was your uh thinking well i have a logistical concern uh you know listeners know that i recently had a child and um just due to child and other you know changes in my household like staying up Till even to the shortened target of like eleven or eleven thirty, and then doing a podcast after that was just not on the table for me at all. But that logistical concern aside, um, I guess the 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 entire uh, lead up to the Oscars was full of stories about how uh, I, I think. Okay, here it is: the all the scrambling for changes that the Oscars was doing, the whole host debacle, and then like cutting things out of the production, only then forcing to add them back in. Um, just gave lie to the fundamental absurdity of the enterprise itself, which we, we've talked about before, but it just really, really drove it home. Uh, and that coupled with the fact that we haven't, I think collectively, we haven't seen a lot of the movies. We haven't made a huge push to do so. So I think collectively we just said, screw it. Pete, does that sound like uh, your, your approach? <laughs> I, well, my approach is a little bit different. So, my sense was, from my perspective, that you, Mark, 
didn't do didn't want to watch the Oscars because first and foremost of all the things you said, the time that it takes. And I think it's worth noting that our relationship with staying up late to watch things on television has changed. <laughs> and uh, I would also suggest that the relationship that everybody has with staying up late to watch things on television has changed. I'm trying to remember the last big thing that happened on TV that was late. Uh, certainly the late night shows have kind of moved to being this hybrid, watch it on TV, watch it, stream it online whenever you want kind of thing. Um, maybe if you're really into specific sorts of video game streaming and you want to watch a championships that's taking place in Europe or in Asia or you're in Europe or you're in Asia and you might want to be or Africa or Australia or Antarctica, South America, well, South America would be the same time zones as us. But the point being that, like, I'm trying to think of instances where it is a celebrated thing to stay up late and watch TV anymore. And it kind of seems like people are willing to an extent to watch things that happen at a given time. But that the culture of staying up late to watch something that is on TV at that hour is pretty much done. And and of all of the talk about the Oscars, uh, you know, oh, they don't have a host. Oh, you know, they can't figure out what they're trying to do. You know, the Oscars is basically, you know, an elitist institution that's uncomfortable with its relationship with privilege to the point where it has to sort of like not even put somebody who represents it in front of everybody else. Right. Because they because they would just create a target. Um, so on one hand, it's sort of like, OK, uh, yeah, that's all a big, big problem. The bigger problem is that the Oscars take forever and the podcast is always really late and painful. And um, and why are we subjecting ourselves to that? And then why are you, Mark, subjecting yourself to that with a new baby? Well, right? and subjecting so, yeah. ourselves to a level of insomnia we probably don't deserve. We definitely well, don't deserve. <laughs> I have that level of insomnia in spades. I was going to be up. So don't worry about me. But it does occur to me, like, why do we stay up so late? I kind of think, oh, well, why didn't we just report on the Oscars up until the point of the podcast? And just that's as much as we watch, because I feel like that's the experience a lot of people have now is they don't stay up all the way to the end. It's basically like, when do you tap out? And uh, and and so we could have done a when do we tap out of the Oscars podcast? But instead, we tapped out fast. The other aspect of it is um, other than just sort of like a general distaste for it. I mean, I saw four of the nominees. I usually see most of the nominated films after the Oscars. But but here's the thing. There's this big fragmentation of popular culture that's been going on, you know, for pretty much since overthinking it started. Yeah. And uh, it, it goes with the sort of fragmentation of kind of networked audiences and mainstream entertainments being a thing that's kind of much, much less than it used to be. And things being much more targeted across all sorts of media, whether it's the kind that you encounter in the workplace, the kind that you encounter on the streets, the kind that you encounter on your TV, on your computer, on your phone, are all kind of being tailored and targeted to you. And it seems to me like there's an issue with the Oscars specifically that it still claims to be the kind of final boss generalist approval of movies. And I kind of wonder if part of the crisis that kind of snapped it heading into this year is that it, it can't carry that burden anymore, that the Oscars can't be the best movie. And it really hasn't been for some time. Obviously, the Oscars has an interest. The Academy has an interest. But I'm much more comfortable right now with things like the Independent Spirit Awards or even the Golden Globes. Like, what's your niche? What are you trying to do? What is the context for you saying that this particular movie is the best? I mean, the, and, the Golden yeah. Globes, what they're trying to do is to have the like the 88 members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association get to drink with as many movie stars as possible. Right. You know, like, and, yeah. And if that's the if that's like the sort of 
thing that brings you all in the room, I'm on board, right? Like, like nominate films that help you do that. Nominate, uh, you know, people that you want to drink with, you know, that, that seems more honest. I don't know, Matt, I interrupted you. No, that, that was it. That was the, yeah. you know, but, that was the whole yeah. point that I was going to make. But it's sort of like at this point, the point of the Oscars in terms of the honor that they bestow is it's the people within the industry, but only certain people within the industry voting you know, as members of a group, but not a group that they hang out with or a group that kind of internally socializes as far as I know. Right. So not really like the Academy, as far as I know, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, Matt, you could probably tell me Do like people who are in the Academy together don't necessarily hang out in the context of like being in the Academy. No, it's or, not, yeah. It's not like there's an, there's a lounge. Right. Or anything yeah, yeah. Like that, that they can go to the actual actually the membership of the Academy is sort of a closely guard. It's a, sort of, a, sorry, they guard it closely, but it is sort of an open secret who is in the Academy. Right. Like there's uh, there's no list. There's no official role. And it makes it difficult to to market to them to, to do your movies for that uh, thing. I mean, at least there is an official role, but it's not. um it's not public and it's a smaller group than you think. And it contains a lot of old white guys, uh, who are still hanging on from the early days of cinema, a lot more, um, of those than you think. And so the, the voting results skew in a particular direction and the, the kind of the, the recent admission of a whole bunch of, of people into the Academy, people who maybe don't have the storied careers, you know, that the, the old guard have, but who are promising or who have a lot of heat on them right now, or who have done something, uh, kind of interesting, maybe something that doesn't, um, that doesn't uh, amount to a body of work um, yet that like those people are, are not yet in the, or the, a lot of those people were admitted to the Academy this year in order to have a kind of a, a, a more um, diverse group of voices, right. Rather than kind of this univocal, uh, you know, the echoes of the studio system thing that they, that they had. I mean, the, the, you know, the Academy didn't let Michelle Williams in. She's one of the better actresses of her generation, um, partly to punish her for having been on television. Mm-hmm. But like, really, uh, well, she didn't petty, want to huh? wait for their lives to be over. You know, <laughs> to get an acting. No, right now, <laughs> what will it be? Yeah, exactly. Will I be in the Academy or will it be? Sorry, and it was sorry for uh, for quite a long time, right? Because like, even though I think it was Blue Valentine or something that that she with Ryan Gosling that she was nominated for, um, or or was it Brokeback Mountain? Um, like it was, you know, uh, the first amazing performance that she was nominated for. She wasn't admitted to the Academy because it wasn't uh, they. Uh, judge that she did not have a body of work yet that um, that uh, you know um, led her to be an academy uh, led her to be an academy member. I, I I sort of relate the whole crisis. It's it's sort of uh, akin to the crisis of authority, you know. Um, and I think that like there was a lot of there there was a lot of talk. What uh, during the kind of culture war on campus, um, 
the the early days of the culture war on campus and the hand wringing about this sort of thing about revising the canon of what gets taught in literature courses in campus. And I, I feel like this was a big discourse, Pete, when we were in college. It predated us a little bit and then got more um, got even more. Uh, heated after we left do do like what was your engagement with that kind of um oh with that kind of kind of thing well I mean, what was my engagement with the idea that we need to revise the canon um well i've got a couple I mean, of look, i was taught i was taught by a guy named harold bloom who wrote yeah. a book called the western canon yeah and, i mean uh, I, I, yeah, yeah and i went to school specifically where i did because i believed you know, because I had been studying classics and because I believed that I wanted a foundation in this kind of older historical stuff. And uh, and so, you know, I wanted the canon. And I've also seen, of course, it fall out of fashion, fall out of favor. One of, of course, the hilarious things about the canon is it does periodically change when things come in or out of fashion, even though people tend to believe that that isn't the case, right? Like, it's not like this is the first time that there's been people who are wringing their hands over what's in the canon or what's not. I mean, it took a long time. You think Michelle Williams had a tough time. Think about how long it took Shakespeare to be admitted to the Western canon. That was like a hundreds of years long affair before right, that. Right, and took- that, like, like uh, as the greatest writer, you know, yeah, of uh, yeah. in English letters... Um, yeah, that's, that's a weird one. I mean, I, you know, it's funny in college, uh, I don't know who your, your, uh, do you remember English 125B? I remember yeah. it like it was yesterday. And, uh, mine included an Elliot section, um, and as the, like the modernist, you know, and, yeah. uh, I, I was talking with the, with one of the professors i don't think it was the guy who was teaching my what i say guy um they they did seem to be a lot of a lot of old men uh the the sort of old um new critics of the yale english department right but the the uh the particular person i was talking to was like well i remember when they they would kind of look at you sideways if you taught Elliot, and it's like, why aren't you teaching Yates? Why are you teaching yeah. Elliot? And this idea of things falling in and out of fashion, we don't like to think about it, but you know, they fall in and out of fashion from a larger group. There are candidates for being in fashion or out of fashion, and then there are other people who are sort of who are sort of right out, and they tend to be people who are part of historically underrepresented or disadvantaged groups. So you know that. So then the the or to kind of I, I I always feel like the war to be a part of the canon is kind of misguided because it seems like we need to move beyond the idea of what a canon uh, of what a can of one canon of the idea that there is one um you know, one great tree in the forest yeah. rather than a kind of a denser and kind of more interdependent uh series of uh, kind of ecosystem of letters. And I, I just, sorry, there's a long way around the barn to say that I feel like to a certain extent, all these, a, a lot of new voices having to do with, with the Oscars and, and, you know, believe me, talking about uh, systemic oppression is never a bad idea. Highlighting that is never a bad idea. Like the, um, and, and trying to redress uh legitimate grievances this is this is never a bad idea but i i think that like i think that there is something misguided about like oh the oscars should be the same but different 
you know, rather mm-hmm. than saying we need a whole a whole new thing, and not only with issues of uh, you know issues of uh, hashtag Oscars so white, not only with issues of like no uh, you know underrepresentation of female directors being nominated, not many other kind of structural problems that you could you could talk about with with the Oscars. Um, there are also like the sort of the business thing, you know, issues and the technological issues and things like this. And the idea that like, well, Netflix is going to buy, you know, an Oscar for Roma at the cost of like mid tens of millions of dollars. This is, is this really the best use of their money? I don't know. I don't know what it gets Netflix, um, except among, uh, like a small aristic, cadre of media professionals to get to to get well, that uh, to get that award. I, I you know I don't let know. Me I a, let me take a let me take a stab at let me take a stab at answering that. Yeah. Um, and also addressing the suggestion you said earlier, Madison. You know, rather than make the Oscars different but the same, you know, like do a whole other new thing. What Netflix is trying to do is uh, get a piece of obviously the um, you know not just the uh, the the, the the praise and the honor that the Oscars gets now, but you're trying to get a piece of the legacy and the continuity, right? Of the of buy, buying into a piece of that, um, of that framework, right? Going all the way back to, you know, Casablanca and, you know, I don't know the Godfather, any classics of, of cinema that, you know, you can poo poo all the Oscars in the here and now, but, you know, we have the lineage of the Oscars honoring great movies that have obviously influenced um, uh, filmmakers, both kind of, you know, quote unquote commercial and, you know, versus, you know, art- artistic filmmakers. That's a real thing, right? It can't be ignored. So that's what Netflix is trying to get. And that's the problem with trying to say, um, you know, just frankly, I don't know, blow up the Oscars, right? Find some new way to think about um, honoring movies because it's so hard to break from that lineage. Um, I, so I don't yeah. know what, uh, what the way for it is. Yeah. So to, to, and also to touch back on what Matt was saying, canons, right. And the, why is the idea of a canon relevant to the Oscars? And I think it breaks down to like, what is a canon doing? And to me, what a canon is, is it's what you're talking about, Mark. It is a, it is a way of learning about chains of influence that this work and among works of art specifically this work of art influences this work of art this work of art is a reaction to this work of art and um it absolutely should it should not be a difficult thing to comprehend that there are different canons i don't think that kids grow up in germany reading t.s Eliot. kids don't grow up in japan you know reading shakespeare Right. Like, I mean, I guess they do if they speaking English. Right. But it's like we already have a situation where there are a variety of different canons. We just don't see it because we only see the people who are speaking our own language. And we have these sorts of assumptions about who's in our in-group and who's in our out-group, what our canon is. Right. When you're participating in tradition and you're reacting to a tradition, obviously, there's always going to be constant sharing based on who's communicating with whom and the micro history of what what art is available to people. What can they translate? What can they see without translating? Uh, I mean, I guess what here's here's a, here's a good example of canon, right? Um, and this is I'm going to botch some of the small details, but broad pictures, right? Voltron, uh, and, and I would say this part of my relationship with canon is an anxiety of always wanting to produce a new new canons to explain new traditions and new through lines of tradition. Like there should be a canon in which Eddie Murphy's Boomerang is a member, right? Like there should be a canon in which like. 
I mean, Eddie Murphy's Trading Places is a now I remember. Basically, there should be an Eddie Murphy canon is what I'm saying, because he influenced so much and was influenced by so much. But nobody would necessarily say that he's like a canon person, because when you're thinking about canon, you're thinking about school. Right. And you're thinking about the legitimacy that's lent to things through kind of academics and aristocrats. But also you're thinking about if you have to learn things in chronological order, you know, you start as old as possible and you move from there. It takes a while for you to get to the 1980s if you even get there by the time everybody checks out senior year. But like um, so, I mean, so I mean, I'm not joking about the whole I've had I had conversations all through college about like the new canon and and, uh, and Eddie Murphy particular specifically. But just this idea of like uh um, do you want, like, it's, it's so hard because, oh, these Voltron. Okay. So let's talk about Voltron. Um, you guys know, Mark, you know, what Voltron is right. The, the robots and the pieces yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. 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 So it's robots. There's, they're Japanese robots, the Japanese franchise, but the way that it was introduced to American audiences, right. Is that the animations were purchased by American producers who did not speak Japanese and had no access to a translator. So they re they, they purchased multiple different television shows and they dubbed them in English with new stories. Right. And, and so, like, Voltron, as we understood it from our childhood, not only is it not really consistent with what was, uh, you know, the sort of the mecha shows that were happening in Japan and there's sort of discontinuities of influence, it's not even internally consistent among the franchises that it started out as, right? Like, it's been recontextualized. And so if you were to talk about the influences of Voltron, you would have to confront both the idea of, like, well, what's the truest influence in the original Japanese mecha genre of anime, right? Or... Do we have to start with this sort of branch off where it becomes American and, and create this high, entirely different story around it because there was this disconnected language and they weren't able to talk to each other uh, or weren't interested right in dialogue? Uh, and the talking to each other was just that little bit too expensive for them not to be interested in doing it. Right. And so uh, when you're talking about like representation, part of it is a professional dispute about hiring and jobs. Right. But and like part of it is about artistic voice and, and feeling like my voice is being ignored and your voice is being ignored. But I think part of it is also about this legacy of having these people who are very clearly working in parallel to each other, but who, for whatever reason, were not paying. And the main reason being like money, racism, all sorts of different reasons. were not communicating with each other or at the very least, we're not openly acknowledging the influences that they were having on each other. Uh, and, and like the fact that Spike Lee was nominated for the first time tonight and also the fact that Spike Lee came to the Oscars direct like Waluigi are the two things that would make me want to watch the Oscars the most because Spike Lee should be part of this. And the fact that he wasn't all this time shows that something has been wrong this entire time. But that really goes in this idea of like canon and influence and branching trees and and influences that are happening that you're denying that are happening and influences that you don't want to have happen because they don't match your idea of how people ought to be working together or, or being affected by each other um there's there's this is like a whole we could do a whole bunch of overthinking it podcasts about this topic and we could probably do it and the problem here's the biggest problem the biggest problem is that the oscar movies that are engaged with this subject are engaging with it on like a graduate level uh except for black panther which is much more mass market which is really exciting 
right? But it's like when you go to watch a prestige film that is trying to deal with the history of race or gender or, you know, you know, international cooperation or like misunderstanding among cultures or like were the relationships with one group of people with a war that happened like totally somewhere else with the, you know, there's no one oh one right? Like it's like, it jumps right into like, well, I saw the blind side and I liked it. Right. And, and, which, <laughs> and yes, and I, that's a joke. Cause I guess the blind side, of course she did win an Oscar yeah, for I mean, it. Uh, yes. Yes. But I'm like sorry, you Pete. jump right into moonlight, you jump right from La La Land, like right into moonlight. Well, and moon, there's no like, there's moonlight. no like warm up. I feel like you know? Moonlight is uh, Moonlight is an exception, you know, right? They're not they're not all like Moonlight. Like a lot of them, a lot of them are like The Shape of Water or something like that, right? Which has some sort of arty. It has sort of arty elements, uh, but it's a, and it has sort of genre elements. But really, it's a story about kind of 1950s style racism, right? Like it's it's middlebrow. Yeah. It's not it's not particularly challenging. Moonlight is is challenging and like. Uh, the fact that it kind of made it there is a sign of uh, that things are are you know however slowly changing uh, changing for the better, but there is like an oscar movie is a is a, an awards contender movie is a particular thing right like it's I guess it's challenging to a modern sensibility because of pace or because of like filmmaking technique, because a lot of long shots, because of, uh, you know, the duration of shots, the style of editing, a style of music, a style of acting, right? Like, uh, I get that. But, but it's, they, they don't tend to be the most pathbreaking, um, experimental films, you know, or, or the most kind of vital, um, films they they the ones that really do well in the Oscars tend to be kind of museum pieces, you know, and that's uh, I, I I think that's something that like they that an open secret that everyone wanted to that they wanted to address with the like the popular movie uh, Oscar this year, but like that that in, uh, amounts to admitting that the rest of them are unpopular it you know it seems like kind of a no win situation um you know it seems like kind of a no win situation because there there are so many uh kinds of of there's so many kinds of excellence there's so many kind of flavors of excellence and so many things deserving uh commemoration and it's a much much bigger industry kind of access to it has been democratized especially you know since the advent of the iphone um of i should say of uh, you know affordable video technology uh that like it's almost insufficient like the 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 concept um is the concept is too small a vessel to hold the kind of the overflowing uh, uh, reality of of film practice now? Uh, yeah, and it's a travesty that that Spike Lee, uh, you know, it takes him until now. It was a travesty that that Taxi Driver lost to ordinary people. You know, <laughs> like uh, Martin Scorsese, another another super interesting figure. Um, in in cinema and you know someone with a, uh, a kind of a bizarre relationship to the academy partly because like he's new york and the academy is la he's sort of genre and the academy is genre but only certain genres and like they all have kind of a like high gloss patina on them and and he's a lot more visceral and exciting i you know i don't know i'm not really going anywhere in 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 what i'm saying but it seems like a a a, uh, a problem that 
it's it's very difficult to to think your way out of. Do you mind if I, I shift gears? I have a question that's frivolous uh, for sure. both of you, but it is based on the idea that Pete brought up of like our relationship to staying up late to watch things uh, is has changed irrevocably um, because you know uh, broadcast is no longer a commodity of scarcity. You know, and the expectation is that you can get whatever you want to watch whenever you want to watch it, and when you know when you don't. Um, it's usually because someone is trying to wring another couple of dollars out of it. But like when you don't, it's, it's frustrating. And it's, it's, I, I nearly said legitimately frustrating. Who can say what legitimate is? It's all, this whole thing is made up, but it is frustrating when you can't get what you want when you want to watch it. So, uh, speaking of late night shows and like, go, you know, going to bed with them or waking up and watching them on YouTube or like waking up and watching any of the media outlets that like excerpt the YouTube. YouTube videos and show you rather than showing you like 90 second long clips, show you like a variety of 10 second long clips. Like that's a thing as well. Um, do you have a, 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 do you have a television in your bedroom? Either of you? I do not. Oh yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah, uh, recently, but uh, we do. So interesting. We have a TV that's connected to an Apple TV and a DVD player. Um, so, oh, got it. so you can't broadcast, yeah. but you can, you can yeah. mindful, you can watch TV mindfully. <laughs> well, we can also stream things from the iPad. So, uh, the most common way we would use it would be to, uh, if we want to rent or buy something on Amazon or Google play and then, or, or on Netflix, right? It's easy with Netflix. Cause you can just use the, the, um, the app on the Apple TV, but you get anything you can put on the app, the, uh, iPad, you can throw up on the TV. Okay. Don't throw up on the TV. It's on the other side of the room. You're going to get most of it on the bed, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's, there's a screen. We have a monitor. We, we have only, we have one. Te- if you think a tele, if you define a television as a device that receives, either digital or coaxial broadcast, then we have one of those and it gets a digit. It has a digital antenna uh, and that's in the living room, but we have three places where you can watch streaming video in the house, uh, like three monitors. Um, one of them is a TV in the, in the living room. One is a TV in the bedroom. And one of them is my desktop computer in the, uh, in our sort of office, um, guest room. So that's our setup. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think to your point, Matt, like there's no, at least in our house, and it sounds like in yours, Pete, as well, too, there's no like mindless channel surfing, uh, especially into the late hours and then getting presented with that, you know, quote unquote, late night television um, that uh, that right, you were rightly pointing out is essentially repackaged uh, and much more convenient to watch on YouTube. Well, right. Yeah, the, day the, after. the idea of kind of like going to sleep with Johnny Carson or Dave Letterman or yeah. whoever, you know what I mean? Whoever your person is that the uh, the idea that you would kind of like put that on and sort of drift off as the you know, as you kind of uh, go in and out of, of dozing off and then finally fall asleep with the TV on like I and I think that's that's not super healthy and doesn't lead to the greatest nights of sleep. Like I have enough time. I I have enough of a a hard time sleeping and and falling asleep that like any kind of video or light or phone or anything like that, I try to stop, you know, an hour before, before I go to bed, but I do listen to podcasts. Like I have this extraordinarily dorky, um, like really ugly, silly looking, uh, like headband that has a Bluetooth receiver and earphones in it. 
um, so that I can like lay comfortably on my side and listen to podcasts or like more recently, like, <laughs> you know, there are these sort of engineered, not exactly meditation, but kind of like relaxation tapes that use, you know, I don't know the power of the power of sleep technology <laughs> to like, uh, <laughs> to help the, the anxious modern person drift off. And, uh, I definitely do that. So I, you know, believe me, I'm not on my like no electronics, no electronics high horse. It's just the visual would be that would be too much for me. I don't think I could manage that. I mean, it's too much for me, and I do it anyway. So. <laughs> um, yeah. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was the purpose of asking that, Matt? What were you trying to well, get? No, at? I just. I guess it was just. I. It was a question that I was curious about about the the relationship between. Um, the relationship between sort of staying up late and kind of TV in the bedroom and, and things like this, like, you know, a, another setup that I've seen and occasionally participated in, though I've had to kind of willpower myself away from it is like dual iPads in the bedroom, you know, and that like that just thinking of this, your idea of like not staying up late, you know, and not kind of like experiencing the thing as it's, as it's broadcast, right? Like, um, I'll watch the highlights of the Oscars tomorrow or, you know, scroll down a listicle of, of who won or what, you know, who wore what on the red carpet or something like that. It's, it's almost like the, the live experience of the, of the event is, oh, there's the, uh, the smart speaker. It just, I don't know what I said that, that, uh, started it up, but, um, but uh, did, did, did you hear my uh, Amazon Echo device? No, we didn't hear your. You didn't hear your Alexa trying to get no, to don't, horn don't, in. Don't on say the her name. Don't say. You'll wake her. You'll wake her up. Candyman, like candyman, candyman. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. I mean, you know what that makes me think of is. Um, it's funny we haven't even talked about Oscar parties up to this point, right? When was the last time any of you went to or hosted an Oscar party? I never. I'm always I, for the last eleven years. I've been on with you guys the night of the ceremony. Yeah, I'd say, like we, we hosted. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. We, we hosted one probably like three years ago. I think two or three years ago. Um, and you know, like by that point, I'd say uh, uh, besides myself and my wife, four guests made it through to the end. We started out with probably like a dozen, and um, attrited throughout the evening down to just two, two or four. Um, so that's definitely less of a thing. Right? I mean, it, it ties back to, of course, you know the. Um, the uh, uh, atomization of the, uh, the, the the media market and the fact that you know we're not all rooting for Titanic or you know the, the, a, a pop, an actual popular movie that's actually up for it. So um, I mean that's the obvious reason for explaining it. But um, I guess like yeah, it's it's a hard sell then for something to be a late night thing that's also so vital um that it'll be a social thing as well right what time does the super bowl end right there's something reasonable uh, the actual reasonable hour 10 o'clock and so from six to ten people will actually watch it on the east coast that's that's an incredibly obvious thing uh that the academy seems to not recognize also, so like there there's this aspect in which our the attention our attention spans are no longer long enough to like follow the award season and awards campaigning and the nominations and the the lesser award shows and the you know I'm, i mean i vote in one of them and i can't follow uh i can't follow what's going on and i i just i wonder is the moral thing to do to like not exercise the franchise or to uh just like make a guess like what is better for the the democracy of of the screen actors guild awards right but um it, it's 
you know, it's like a protracted, joyless, drawn out. Oh, that that is what protracted means. Uh, war among you know minor characters who you don't really care about, uh, unless you know unless you take like Black Panther this year as being the kind of the uh, one of the breakout movies of of 2018 and one that everyone could get behind in terms of thinking like, hey, if we're handing out recognition, you know, this is one of the ones that that ought to get it. Um, certainly more I mean, than I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that at all. I think that we absolutely do care about the people at the Oscars. Like when J.K. Simmons won Best Supporting Actor in 2015 for Whiplash, I'm on board with the yellow M&M, right? Like, it's making it happen. You know, Schillinger is, is winning the thing. I, I think that it's very fashionable to, like, bash the Oscars as if we never liked them. But, like, we liked them for a long time. <laughs> we watched them for a long time, right? Like, didn't we? We've talked about it very excitedly on this podcast for a lot of years. So I'm not going to pretend that I never cared or that or that there's something that there's some some way superior to these people. I just feel like the actual awards ceremony isn't it has has design problems and has kind of relevance problems and is also like not shaping the sort of the lifestyles that we have. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't like this. I, guess, like, I don't know. I guess, Pete, I consume a lot of entertainment media. And so I, I like I guess what I'm what you're hearing and what I'm saying or, or what I sh- what I should be saying is more accurately like I, I do feel like I reach a point of fatigue in recent mm. years. And it's more it is more in recent years. Right. Because like it's a phenomenon that's been building, I guess, in Shakespeare and love the kind of the modern Oscar campaign and reached what one hopes is an apotheosis in Roma, where there are tens of millions of dollars being spent to, to get Netflix this this award. Um yeah, it's uh, it, that that there is this kind of slog, and it sort of takes over the town. It takes over all the billboards in the town. It it uh, if you, you're geo targeted with online ads, so even when you're reading unrelated publications, there are a lot of for your consideration ads. If you are in, I guess, certain neighborhoods of Los Angeles, I don't know how how deep the micro targeting rabbit hole goes. But uh, oh, that sounds miserable. I'm so sorry. Yeah, nobody's like, hey, remember your friend Alfonso Cuaron, you know, or Cuaron? Like, nobody nobody does that to me. Nobody's like, hey, everybody in New England, remember Inaritu? Like, he's always watching you. <laughs> it's like nobody is constantly reminding me to vote for the Oscars because I don't I don't have the opportunity. But I guess being in L.A., it must be very that's that's so weird that the Oscars are kind of happening all the time. And this makes the actual ceremony kind of irrelevant. Like yeah, the experience of the Oscars, like a, is the geo-targeting. Yeah, it's a season. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, that's a that's an interesting thing. It's, a, it's one chalk one up for reasons to move out of Los Angeles, right? <laughs> well, what about this? What if they? Because because this is what I'm hearing. I also I don't I remember a time when the awards season didn't even feel like a thing, even if it was a thing inside the industry. Uh, there's this when I listen to podcasts or reports now about the Oscars, everybody talks about the awards that lead up to the Oscars and what they might indicate about the Oscars. And the part of me that likes games and game design thinks those aren't linked at all. Right. Like there's no reason why winning the Golden Globe would necessarily help you in winning the Oscar. 
Uh, like there's no the thing. It's not like when it got touchdown in the first quarter could help you if you have to like go for two points in the fourth, right? Like there's no causal. We're we're inventing this causal relationship that doesn't exist uh, because this thing is because this thing is just so protracted. Well, Pete it, Cannons, yeah. Pete Cannons are are a way to talk about a history of influence. <laughs> so what you're saying then? So this now it's is interesting. So what you're saying is that the performance of the Oscars every year is influenced in a, in an artistic way by the performance of the previous award seasons. And this also lends credence to the idea that the real Oscars is the performative advertising campaign that happens leading up to the Oscars. I wonder if it would be more fun if that just had running tallies the whole time. If you could just, if the average, if the like billboards always had to disclose where each movie were going, were in the running and you, and you could vote to try to like push it ahead. Um, although I guess then they would need some information security people that they probably can't afford to pay to stop, you know, the, uh, the like uh, um, like team first man from uh, from from running the table or whatever. But it's just it's that is interesting that because I, I also remember thinking there wasn't a time when the red carpet there was a time when the red carpet wasn't separate from the Oscars. Like like they uh, the Oscars at one point kind of added the red carpet is what it feels like to me. And what it feels like to me is that they should have moved the Oscars to start when the red carpet starts <laughs> instead of having another show. Yeah, because probably, the Oscars goes too right. long at the end. Yeah. yeah, I guess covering the covering the arrivals, right? I you know, it's because it's because it's a thing that you can package and sell to advertisers, you know, and if the more you make it an event in itself, you can sell it to advertisers separately from the uh separately from the ceremony. So, you know, there's there's a lot of you know, uh, the, it's sort of dictated by the medium, and like as as viewership declines, the more you need to kind of really eventize sort of things around the uh, things around the ceremony yeah. itself. Or you can like take a step back, right, and like look at the big picture and think, okay, this is a show we have to put on. We're supposed to be people who put a show on. If this is what people like, right? But I got it, it's like, maybe it's just a case where like. They've just made so many commitments over so many years to put all these pieces together that they have legacy costs, right? And they like they can't just sort of wipe the slate clean and start the Oscars. Yeah, it, it is again. like there is debt service that's you yeah. know that's important. No matter how low you reduce the the budget deficit, it's just that the servicing that debt is is just this big structural problem that you you know that you have. I mean, I actually I read a uh, a. Um, God, I'm trying to find the right article. I read an A Modest Proposal style uh, piece in a newsletter I read, which is called The Ankler by Richard Rushfield, uh, who's an entertainment journalist and, and who writes a kind of very insidery, um, sort of iconoclastic uh, email newsletter that is certainly worth the, the few dozen dollars a year I, I pay for it. Um, the... Um, the point of which was, hey, what if Netflix just took their huge bag of cash and offered to put the Oscars on Netflix? You know, mm-hmm. and that like, you know, you'd, you'd like ABC would sue you, but like the the um, everyone who you care about, all your media elite buddies would still watch. Uh, it would still be as tweeted about, as you know, think pieced about, as uh, uh, memed, you know. And uh, but you'd be kind of doing away 
with the pretense that you're trying to do a mass market thing, right? Like serving all these different audiences, uh, the mass audience being the one that, that usually gets the shaft. Um, why not actually just make it this, this sort of, uh, you know, this sort of elite thing on, on Netflix, right? It's, it seems yeah. like a better thing to do with so $50 million. Here's on, he- you know. Here's another suggestion. So I, my personal belief is that Netflix is throwing this giant bag of money at the Oscars because if it can prove that it can win Oscars, the goal is to delegitimize the existence of movie theaters and run them out of business, right? Like that's the goal for Netflix is to destroy all of the other ways that you can interact with content so that you get it all from Netflix, right? Uh, that's my sense, right? It's like that, that, that with a lot of these sorts of disruptive technologies, the way that you can afford to burn money on it for years and years and years is you're hoping that down the line you will be able to exert a dominant market share and you'll have pricing power, right? And so Netflix wants to have Oscar-winning movies so that it can say, you don't have to go to the movie theater to watch movies. You can watch the Oscar-winning movies at home in Netflix, right? And it's and it's super cheap, right? So and then and then later when the movie theaters go out of business, they can charge you ten bucks for it. Uh, but uh, but but that aside, hey, well, you could put the Oscars on Netflix. You could also put the Oscars in the movie theaters, right? Bump the Oscars up to like one in the afternoon. Have a party where all the movie theaters throw a big party, an Oscar party, where they roll out a red carpet and they get food. And you can go to the Oscars and you buy a plate of food, right? And you and you watch with other movie fans. Right. Like like because really the people more than anybody who really is depending on this whole industry right now seems to me to be the movie theaters, Um, because certainly the actors don't make money doing it. Like it's like like the artists have never really been the true beneficiaries of the movie industry and the various media companies are going to find ways to pivot to digital in various respects. But the movie theaters are up a creek if Netflix wins. So and if the Oscars and stuff like the Oscars goes away. So, like, why don't the movie theaters make it a big party day? Also, why don't the movie theaters all have nice food rather than just like hot garbo or like pretzels that are comically large and disgusting? Right. Like, why don't we why don't we how, are we not at a time? It's, it's the lineage, Pete. <laughs> why are we not at a time where nobody wants to watch three and a half hour thing on television that ends at 11 o'clock at night, uh, except if they can turn it off when they want? And if we also no longer at a time where people eat non-parel snow cap chocolate chips as like a leisure activity (laughs) like what's going on with that what's up with the popcorn right um i don't know that's my i I guess i'm ranting too much we said we weren't going to talk about the oscars and now we've just spent a whole bunch of time talking about the oscars uh at the very least we got to start before it ended which is nice Uh, (laughs) well i mean we're talking about the oscars but we're not talking about the oscars you know what i mean we're talking about not these oscars yeah Yeah. exactly yeah (laughs) not not shows um Hey, you guys want to do a little bit of uh, you guys want to do a little bit of listener feedback? Yes, we haven't yeah. done that in a few weeks. That yeah. was so fun. I know. I like that. Uh, I'm sorry, not listener feedback. It's not feedback as the, as in like uh, you know ratings of our performance. I mean, though though, if you want to leave five stars on on iTunes, that's prov- totally fine with me. Um, no listener comments, right? And on every episode, you can go to the homepage of Overthinking and click on show notes for this episode and go to a place where you can uh, write a comment. You know, the other avenues are still open. No one has shut off podcast at overthinkingit.com. No one has shut off uh, 203-285-6401, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> no. 
Yeah, two eight three six four zero one. Yeah, no one, no one. Those are still there. Though Google does try to shut that off periodically because they never make an outgoing phone call from that number. <laughs> and so that Google phone, I, I have to go in. I have to find re- remember how to log into that uh, account. Go into Google Voice and send myself a text that says "Yo" uh, in order to keep that going to keep that number from being repossessed every. In 12 or 18 months or so, uh, you know, those are, those are still there, but, uh, really people go to the, to the, uh, show notes and write in the comments on the website there. Um, well, we got to rewind way, way back. Uh, this is episode five, five, six. We did five, five, five last, last week, which is, you know, the thing in, in previous years where I would have made such a big deal out of it because I love milestones and it's guys, it's the same number three times, you know, it's five, five, five. It, it's the beginning of every fake phone number in every movie that didn't win an Oscar. Um, but uh, we got to roll back all the way to uh, 550, the Jeopardy episode, in order to, uh, in order to uh, get back to where we left off in the listener comment uh, the listener comment hit parade. So let's go back there and uh, start with John C. talking about Jeopardy. John C. writes, I had a very middle brow style problem with Jeopardy as a kid. Uh, when I realized that the Daily Double doesn't necessarily double anything. <laughs> when you bet everything, you double it, right? That's the idea. I, I mean, but I, I, guess, I know what you mean. Well, no, can can you wait? What are the betting rules now? I forget the mechanic. Is it? Can you bet? <laughs> well, you can go with a hard to- way where you get <laughs> you can bet everything up to the max amount of money that you currently have. Although, if you don't have any money, they give you a minimum. Oh, it's not you, yeah. it's not up to double the the value on the of that clue, right? If it were no. the six hundred, it's about the money you have on the bank. Oh, got yeah. it. So it's in that way. It's like Final Jeopardy. You I mean, it's it's also it's also not daily in that. Shows up twice in the episode. Mm. Yeah, the whole thing is a lie. Wow. <laughs> um, but, uh, but they should John just C- call it Jeopardy because <laughs> that's what it is. The funny thing is that Double Jeopardy and Daily Double are uh, named the opposite ways, right? <laughs> the round of Double Jeopardy should call, be called the Daily Double because it happens once and doubles everything. And then, the, and then the clue that you can bet on should be called Double Jeopardy because it allows you to put your money at risk and potentially double it. So I'm glad we've said it's like San Juan in Puerto Rico. Somewhere in an old map, they put the letters in the wrong, the words in the wrong place and they switched them up. But uh no, sorry. Go ahead, Matt. I, well, no, I, I was just thinking, like double jeopardy, like the, it, as a legal term, uh, means being tried twice for the same crime, and it's a, it's a bad thing. It's against the law. You can't be if you're acquitted of a crime, they can't just take another whack at you, right? Like it's a it's an important uh, legal protection, and, and the idea that um, you know people would willingly place themselves in double jeopardy, it, you know, goes against every American instinct we have. Uh, I think John C goes on to make a non-frivolous point, which is, uh, but are are reality shows with a winner not game shows? I haven't watched many at all, but they certainly seem pitched the same way. I guess conversely, are game shows a kind of reality show? Oh, John, you have opened up a can of worms. <laughs> I could I could describe reality shows as serialized game shows. 
is really what it is at this point. Because now you even like talk about the Great British Bake Off like it's a reality show. People will call it that when it's very clearly a game show. But right, but it's like, it, oh, but it happens over an extended period of time, right? Like, uh, it, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think it has to do with the aesthetic of game shows being a very markedly unique aesthetic, uh, a distinct aesthetic, if not unique? I think it has to do with the specific game mechanics, but how transparent they are and maybe like how prone or not prone they are to the heavy manipulation that we associate with reality television. I mean, let's take, for example, like, you know, people say a lot that Trump was a quote unquote game show host who who accidented his way into becoming president of the United States. Um, I, I don't I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen The Apprentice. Um, was, so I can't say for certain, but I believe that the mechanics of that competition were such that like they were not super transparent and also they were subject to heavy editing and also like um, some um, subjective decision making by Trump and the showrunners that guided the outcome of the win. So that makes uh, The Apprentice more of a reality show rather than a game show. I mean, shouldn't reality shows and game shows change names because game shows show you what really happens and and reality shows are play are playing games with you? <laughs> Like, like Jeopardy is for real. Like well, that guy actually wins that money. Or that woman actually wins that money. Yeah, that Jeopardy. person actually did. Right. <laughs> like it's it's difficult to I, someone can come from behind, but it's difficult to create a false narrative of a yeah. of a Jeopardy show, which is something that the, the kind of misdirect they do all the time in unscripted you know reality shows. Right. <laughs> I think we should just all agree that deal or no deal is neither. Huh. And is 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 an unlicensed psychological experiment. But then, uh, <laughs> I, right, behavioral behavioral economics or behavioral psychology. The the it's interesting. I like the I, the idea. One I don't know. One kind of line I'd I'd like to kind of define is that like um. To what extent is the the focus on playing the game and, and to what extent is the focus on who the people are, right? And to what extent do you feel like you win because of who you are versus you win because of, of what you do? Uh, all we know about the people... Um, in Jeopardy are the, you know, 10 second little interviews that Alex Trebek does with them ending with, what was it? Good for you. Right. Right. (laughs) That, uh, that Mark pointed out or Pat Sajak does the, does the same thing and he's slightly more personable, but like, um, uh, it's like, we don't actually care who the people are. Whereas on something like survivor, which is on my mind because it started a new season recently, uh, and I've heard people talk about it. Like it, it's really more about almost exposing the the truth of of these people's inner characters rather than talking about who's you know uh, uh, rather than just like playing a game. I get I guess that like you have to distinguish then between Survivor, uh, Top Chef. And so you think you can dance um, in terms of like competition reality and how uh, how game showy it is. I guess I, I would say that that uh, there's probably a continuum continuum there and I would probably put them in that order on the continuum to, of least to most game showy uh, of those reality shows. 
Okay. Yellow Jacket. I've long held the theory that the common conjunction of Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune makes a certain synergistic sense. Jeopardy is designed to make you feel as stupid as possible. While Wheel of Fortune makes you feel smarter than all the contestants. It's usually easy to figure out when a contestant has solved the puzzle and is just playing for more cash. By incentivizing not solving the puzzle, it lets the audience solve the puzzle and feel superior to the player. This is an interesting structural observation. I have not, uh, I haven't uh, ever thought of it that way before. That, like, by by making it in your interest to give another spin and cho- choose a letter that you know is there uh, with high frequency, um, you are kind of letting the audience get ahead of you, right? Yeah. yeah. I like that's a very smart observation. I mm-hmm. co-signed that 100%. Do you, yeah, you know. I, I just I feel superior to the people in, in, uh, in Wheel of Fortune. Um, all right. Well, uh, then before we sign off, uh, let's do... 551. Uh, 551 was about woke criticism of Indiana Jones, and we uh, we talked about. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't say Indiana Jones of Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, and uh, we talked about uh, whether it was the worst movie ever or not. In those that comment section, there are really good essays by John C. and Three Act Destructure. They are many screens long, and I uh, I commend them to you. But there isn't really a good way to excerpt them um, to to read on the uh, to read on the air. Uh, but I, I want to go to this uh, particular comment from Clay Schult, who at the end of a uh, at the end of what he writes says uh, apropos of you know the the certain problematic elements in Raiders of the Lost Ark that uh, perhaps our modern sensibility picks out more than uh, a contemporary audience would have. I have a suspicion an American archaeologist from that era might be even more problematic than the fictional <laughs> one of this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> totally agree. Yeah, that should not be a that should not be a surprise. <laughs> from from the actual 1930s that a uh yeah, that a an Ivy League professor or a what 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 is he? Where does he teach? Do we do we know or is it uh a just a sort of liberal arts style school? I think it's name checked as Trinity somewhere in the Indiana Jones verse. Oh, okay. um, but I don't think it's not definitely not supposed to map to a real school. Uh, Marshall College in Bedford, Connecticut, and Barnett College in Fairfield, New York, and he has a close connection to the University of Chicago. I think is that from? Uh, is that uh, sorry? Is that Wikipedia research or is that? Uh... Uh, that's like the New York Daily News. <laughs> Marshall College from the Indiana Jones Wiki. Marshall College is a college in Bedford, Connecticut. It was one of the schools where Indiana Jones taught as a professor of archaeology. He served as dean of students and was succeeded by Charles Stanforth. He was the dean of students. Wow, there you—that's a—that's a tricky one. That's, <laughs> that's a lot of responsibility for somebody who goes gallivanting around all over the world, jumping off of things. Yeah, right. Um, like deans, you know, there's been this explosion in recent years in in academic administrators who you know just sit in meetings and and it's it's uh, sort of unclear what they do. Marketing, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but gosh, dean of student—that's a that's a position where you got to sit in a lot of meetings, you know? Yeah, seriously. Um, you know, yeah, give me the PowerPoint. 
give me the whip. You give me the PowerPoint. I'll give you the whip. <laughs> <laughs> How about we just get a sandwich? Okay. <laughs> um, well, uh, all right. Well, we'll we'll leave it there for comments, though. Thank you very much for commenting. If you'd like to talk about this episode, anything about the Oscars, anything that that happened, because we don't know, please feel free to spoil it for us in the comments or uh, anything about our uh, conversation that you would like to share. Um, Please go to the the homepage, click on show notes for this episode, 556, and uh, leave your thoughts there in the little box where you can type into it. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our members for supporting. Members are those overthinking at podcast listeners who decide that what we do is worth about a buck. It's worth about a dollar per nice. episode. Like it, and they uh, that they get a dollar's worth of entertainment out of this show, and so they support uh, our podcast with a five dollar a month contribution. You can go to overthinkingit.com slash join if you want to become one of them. And thank you to Pete and Mark for podcasting about uh, the Oscars, and uh, you know, just really diving deep into the winners this year and, and what it means about the state of the of the film industry. It was really exciting being on the red carpet with you guys. Uh, Likewise, of course. (laughs) We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably probably doesn't deserve. In this intervening time, while we have recorded it, Spike Lee just won and his first Oscar for the adapted screenplay for Black Klansman. That is happening in real time right now. So they haven't they, 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 they haven't listened they have, to the episode. Yeah, exactly. Oh, they haven't. Okay, never mind. Yeah, they, they, they so it happened last night for them. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs>